Amen. Hey, once again, we're in our study, world religions, cults, and the occult. Ron, give it up. What's number 13? Charismatic chaos. Dude, you got a lot of work until we get to the end. I'm just trying to... The untold. All right, the untold. He Give it for Ron. He did something over there. Guy, nobody can smile better than Ron. Ron's got it going. I tell you what. You want to try that again? Ron, no, number 13 is... Hey, give it up. even said part two. That's a, a big good thing. That's right. Uh, part two, obviously the first half we dealt with uh, the aberrant beliefs and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we're in part two, which is the untold history of the charismatic movement. And we've been dispelling the myth that this is some latest, greatest movement of God that uh, is uh, so strange. It's just because it's in the last days and that's why it's so weird and aberrant and all that stuff. No, we've been seeing throughout our history. Is, uh, no, it's been going on ever since the death of the last apostle. Okay, early church with Montanism carried through with Catholicism, the Shakers and the Irvingites. They started in Europe and then they came over to America, if you will, the first charismatics over here. Then believe it or not, that's the whole basis of Mormonism. Joseph Smith, he did all the believing in miracles, supposedly speaking in tongues and all that stuff. Uh, and he followed the same mindset that you got a word from God outside of God, that he too was a prophet. He too had visions and dreams. That's what started Mormonism, the same premise. Then it uh, moved into the holiness movement. As we saw, it has nothing to do with holiness. Okay, it's everything about Christian uh, verbiage being slapped on to false teachings that say that you can be perfect uh, in the Christian life, that you will become sinless before you get to heaven, if you can believe that. False teaching they picked up from Wesley, the Methodists, unfortunately, and then they said in order for that to take place, the second false teaching is you need a second dose of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? No, you get all the Holy Spirit. We saw that before. At the moment, you get saved, right? You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. And then they say, the uh, misstep number three, they say, the evidence that that happened to you is the speaking in gibberish. Again, I hesitate to call it tongues because it is not the biblical gift that was used back in New Testament times with a known language, okay? So that's the holiness movement. Well, that spread through a guy named Charles Finney in the second uh, revival in our country. Then it went to conferences that launched the Church of God. Then it went to the Salvation Armies. We saw that before. And a guy named Smith Wigglesworth. All the punching, kicking, the red handkerchiefs and all these send me money to get this miracle. Man, nothing new under the sun. He was doing that a long time ago. And then last week we saw, here's where it gets into your new age, your Hinduism, some of the occult practices. This is where it starts their, the charismatic movement merging in with that. And we saw that with Phineas Quimby, a big giant new ager. Then we saw that with Frank Sanford and John Alex Dowie, both who claimed to be Elijah. They clashed over it, and that's why they went their own separate ways. They both created their own charismatic communes uh, as well. Then E.W. Kenyon, his only training was acting school, who went to this acting school taught by Warren Felt Evans, who was a student of Phineas Quimby. So guess what E.W. Kenyon got engaged in? New Age teaching as well. So they got a double dose, unfortunately. And then where we left off was Charles Parham, where we were going to pick up tonight. But here's my point. If we can get that far, we're actually going to make it to the Azusa Street Revival. Now, why do I keep saying that? Because modern charismatics will say, that's when it all began, this last movement of the Spirit of God, right? And as we've been seeing, is that true? No, it's been going on for a long time, unfortunately, okay? And uh, what they do is they uh, take, uh, uh, unfortunately, we've been seeing, the pattern is they take, if they even use the Bible, because oftentimes it's God told me to tell you I had a vision, I'm a prophet of God, this is what the Lord said. If they even go to the Bible, oftentimes their teachings are wrenched out of context of the scripture, twisting the scripture. Now, one of the biggest scriptures that the charismatic community typically completely takes out of context is Joel chapter 2. 
Okay, that that's why we're seeing this outpouring. God said this would happen on the church in the last days. Really? I don't think so. Right? But let's take a look at that text. Joel chapter 2. Okay? Joel chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 28, and then we're going to continue on contextually in through chapter 3. Joel chapter 2. And it's on page 1469 in my Bible, if that helps. All right? Once again, look for the pages in your Bible that are nice, crisp, clean. Probably doesn't have a single wrinkle in there. Almost as if you've never been there. That's right. Because you probably maybe never have. But hopefully you have because you need to be reading through the Bible. Right, Pastor Tom? That's right. Preach it. I'll turn the pages. Right. Stalled enough time. Joel chapter 2. Of course, Joel was written by... Joel gave you some more time there. But uh, verse 28 popped down there. And the heading I have here says, The Day of the Lord. Right? Now... Uh, as we've done in our prophecy studies, the day of the Lord is clearly a day, if you do a study on it, it's a day of uh, gloom, it's a day of darkness, and it's also, the scripture is very clear that the day of Lord involves God's wrath, okay? That's why, therefore, the day, the specific verbiage here, the day of the Lord, uh, when does it begin? It begins at the seven-year tribulation. Why? Because at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, what begins to be poured out on this planet from God? His wrath. So the day of the Lord starts at the seven-year tribulation and then moves forward and then ultimately into the establishment of the millennial kingdom, right? Because God is not done with the Jewish people, right? And he has the Davidic promises, the Abrahamic promises that he's to fulfill, that somebody's going to literally rule and reign in Jerusalem over the whole planet, which, of course, is Jesus, right? And that happens after the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and he establishes the millennial kingdom. But that's the day of the Lord, right? That starts at the seven-year tribulation and moves forward. Now, so the context there is before we even get started, before I even read these verses, does this have anything to do with the church? Why? It can't be, because the day of the Lord involves what? God's wrath, which starts at the seven-year tribulation, which is another reason why we're not in the seven-year tribulation, because Romans chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, we are not appointed unto, we are rescued from, okay, and we are saved from God's wrath, right? So I haven't started reading the verse, and the context tells us already, this has nothing to do with the church, but the charismatics say, this is why this is happening today, that you're seeing this weird behavior in the church from them. Now, let's start reading. Verse 20. And afterwards, after what? The day of the Lord. Right? So, again, is that now? No, it can't be. Right? But, and afterwards, I will what? I will pour out my spirit on what? All people. We'll get to that in just a second. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Stop right there. This is the verse that they quote all the time. See, that's what's happening. They're dreaming dreams. They're having visions. This is God's spirit being poured out in the last days. Only problem is this is dealing with the day of the Lord, which starts the seven-year tribulation, and the context is, guess who? The Jewish people. This is completely ripped out of context. Oh, by the way, I'll just add this. Joel was written about 835 to 796 B.C. Where was the church? Church wasn't even in existence yet. So how could Joel be even referring to the church? Skip over the whole aspect of the day of the Lord, the context. The church wasn't even around for 800-some years. Oh, and by the way, the church is called a mystery Right? And the Bible even says, specifically in the New Testament, that the Old Testament writers, which would include Joel, had no knowledge of the church. Why? Because it's a mystery. So how could Joel be writing about the church when the church wasn't even in existence for 800-some years still to go, and it was a mystery to him? He didn't even know about it. Answer? He's not. This is dealing with Israel. In the last days, when God is getting them prepared, the remnant 
past the seven-year tribulation to the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This is not dealing with the church. But that's when he's going to do it. He's going to pour out his spirit on the Jewish people at that time. He says, even on my servants, uh, servants, uh, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in heavens and on the earth. Listen, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now, what does that sound like? Read Revelation. That's the events of the seven-year tribulation. Are we in the seven-year tribulation? No, but are the Jewish people? Unfortunately, yes. It has nothing to do with us. They're completely taken out of context. Before the coming and the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. Okay, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, who's he talking about there? The church? No, the Jewish people, the remnant. When they finally wake up and realize, oh man, we made the biggest mistake of our lives. Right? And they finally accept Christ as their Messiah. For on, now get more specific. Where's the location here? For where? On Mount Zion and in what? Jerusalem. We're talking about Israel, folks. It has nothing to do with the church. And for there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Keep reading chapter 3. In those days and at that time. What time? The day of the Lord, starting at the seven-year tribulation, moving forward into the millennial kingdom. When I restore the fortunes of who? The church? No, Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people, the church. No, Israel. How many times have we seen this? For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they may drink. Okay, punishment's coming because God's not done with the Jewish people and you divide their land, which is what world leaders are still wanting to do today. Okay, and you mess with Israel, what's going to happen? God's going to have the last word. He's not done with them. But contextually, this is easily demonstrated through and through all about Israel, all about starting the seven-year tribulation, moving forward into the moon kingdom. Okay, it has nothing to do with the church, but what do they say? Well, see, that's why uh, these people, you need to listen to them. And that's why you're seeing them shaking and doing this weird behavior. And you better listen to that person that had that vision, that prophet so-and-so. Because it says right here, Joel chapter 2, that God's going to pour out his spirit. And they're going to dream dreams. And vi- has nothing to do with the church. One of the biggest abused texts, okay, from uh, the charismatic community. Again, that's what they say happened at this event. The Azusa Street Revival. That God poured out his spirit. Complete abuse of the text. Oh, and by the way, again, this, uh, at the beginning there, I had you point this out. It says he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh or all people. Even if you want to say that applied to today, has that happened? <laughs> no. But when will it happen? In the kingdom, when God pours out his spirit on the people during that time. Again, it's impossible. That text cannot apply uh, to the church. Now, I will say this. Some people say, well, Peter, he quoted this text, a portion of it, a small portion of it, uh, in the book of Acts. So therefore, it's got to be dealing with the church. No. Okay. Number one, we just saw who's the context. The Jewish people. What's the time frame? The day of the Lord. Okay. Starting with God's wrath being poured on this planet, the seven-year tribulation moving forward. And people would say that basically what Peter's doing is basically telling them that what you're seeing at Pentecost, okay, when God did pour out a spirit on the church, is it's a prefillment, if you will. It's a teaser of what's to come. But we know it's not an actual full fulfillment because that doesn't take place until the day of the Lord. And even at that event, did God's spirit fall on all people? No. So again, even when Peter quotes it, you can't say, well, it's got to be true for today. No, it's not. 
That is basically a little teaser, what the theologians call a prefillment, right? Here's basically a preview of what's to come. Oh, and by the way, when the church first started there in Acts chapter 2, who were the believers? At that time, they were all Jews. Exactly. It wasn't until later then Gentiles started to come into the church, okay? So either way you look at it, can't use that as a proof text, but man, they use that, and that's one of the big, big proof texts. So I wanted to, to dispel that. Okay, so not only does Joel have nothing to do with the church, but it cannot be used as a pretext to explain this last day's supposed movement of God, and this is why all this weird stuff's going, no. First of all, what have you been seeing? This is nothing new under the sun, man. You can't say this is some recent thing. It's been going on for a long time, right? Number two, the text you use, one of the biggest ones you use, Joel 2, is completely wrenched out of context. And number three, what we're going to see tonight is the Azusa Street Revival, the event that you said is where it all started, which is not true, okay, uh, is an outpouring of God. This had nothing to do with God. And I think that would be very clear. Uh, in just a minute. But I'm going to give you a little teaser because they recently celebrated the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street Revival. And they didn't just celebrate it. They said, boy, I tell you what, if only we would be blessed to have that event happen again in our lifetime. Man, no revival would take place. Souls would get saved. And it's just, it's the panacea for everything. If only that event could happen again. Really? But here's them just uh, ratcheting it up, saying that, man, we need to have another Azusa Street revival in our lifetime. Let's take a look at this. Well, picture this. You're in a stadium jam-packed with 100,000 other believers, and you're all there to celebrate one of the biggest events in modern Christian history. Here's the good news. This can be a reality, all courtesy of Lou Ingalls' latest mega event. Lou Engel has been organizing large prayer rallies since 1999. He is the co-founder of The Call, a prayer movement where hundreds of thousands of people gather for prayer, fasting, and worship. On April 9th in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, The Call will hold a prayer rally called Azusa Now. The event will be held on the 110th anniversary of the Azusa Street Outpouring, the beginning of the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement in the U.S. Lou is praying this event will help to start a great awakening in America that will turn people back to God. And Lou Engel is here with us now. Lou, my friend, good to see you. Wendy, it's so good to see you. You were with us 16 years ago when the first call took place, and it's a blessing to be with you. On the mall in D.C., half a million people. I was, yeah, amazing, amazing. I've been following you for a while. So, but anyway, this Azusa Street event is coming up April 9th. um, It's to commemorate the the first one that happened 100 years ago. a lot of folks might not have heard about Azusa Street. What happened there? Well, it, what happened was an African-American man named William Seymour came from Houston. He was seeking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God fell in 1906 in a small group of believers. That tongue of fire erupted on the place called Azusa Street. And it spread all over the world. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it was, they said the color line was washed away in the blood. It united the body of Christ and all those races. Could God do such a thing again? How long did it last and why did it end? Well, it, it, it actually went to about 2000, uh, I mean, 1916. Okay. And it really it was partly racial division in the body of Christ that actually ended it. And so... But we believe that God's bringing these things back again because he wants to make us one. So before it ended, though, William Seymour and someone else had a prophecy uh, that's pertinent to today. Tell us about that. 
It was somewhere between 1909 and 1913. He prophesied that in a hundred years, a revival far eclipsing Azusa Street would take place. Maria Woodworth Eder, the healing revivalist, prophesied the same thing. Guess what happened? It didn't come to pass. So what did that make those two people that he just mentioned, including the guy attributed to starting the Azusa Street revival? William Seymour, you're false prophets, false teachers. What's the scripture say in Deuteronomy? You better be glad that we're not under the Old Testament. You need to stone those people. How dare you say that you got a word from God and it didn't come to pass? But again, this is just right out of the mouth. That's why I'm just quoting Bible. And it's just how do these people get away with it? You just quoted false prophets. And it was no big deal. But again, they, they ramped this thing up like, man, this is the biggest thing. It was called Azusa Now. Of course, they did it there in, in L.A. And this was April 9th, 2016, to proclaim the message of unity, prayer, and breaking down racial barriers. The call is simple. Come, Holy Spirit. Just as the church experienced during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street Revival in 1906, led by William J. Seaborn. Uh, registrations were on their way to 100,000-plus people attending. And uh, listen to this, denominational and racial barriers have been broken across Catholic and Protestant churches. What are you doing jumping up with the Catholics? Are they Christians? Rhymes with no. And if you don't realize that, then get our 12-week study on Roman Catholicism. Excuse me? It's a workspace salvation. It's the Christians. What are you talking about? But why are you chumming up with them, right? Unfortunately, that thing was seen by millions of people around the world. They televised it in five languages, English, Spanish, Korean, Chinese, and Portuguese, okay? But notice the guy's verbiage. If only we could experience this again, what happened at Azusa Street. It was, quote, one of the biggest events in modern church history. It will start if it could only happen again in our lifetime. A new great awakening in America. It will turn people back to God. Is that true? Are you kidding me? When you take a look at what events led up to Azusa Street and what went on Azusa Street, the last thing you'd ever want is for anything like that ever to happen again. And yet they base their history on this event as if it's a big thing. It's incredible. It's like, whoa. Now, let me demonstrate you folks. I'm just being uh, overbearing on this, but it started again with a guy named Charles Parham is our next one that we're looking at. Okay, it's kind of where we left off last week. Charles Parham, together with William J. Seymour, they are credited with the early spread of modern-day Pentecostalism, uh, not only in America, but around the world. Parham was one of five sons of his family. His mom died in 1885. Uh, the next year, his dad married a lady named Harriet Miller, the daughter of a Methodist. So what did he get acquainted with with that? Unfortunately, the false teaching that went into the holiness movement that has nothing to do with holiness. It's about uh, the false teaching from Wesley that you can become perfect, okay, uh, sinless before you get to heaven, okay? And then uh, Charles married Sarah Thistlewaite, the daughter of a Quaker. So getting acquainted with that. So you can see where some of his early influences are. Uh, he began conducting services at the age of 15. He enrolled in a Methodist school. He attended until 1893, where he, quote, came to believe that education would prevent him from ministering effectively. <laughs> what? But sometimes that's spiritualized. I don't, need, I don't need no doctrine. I don't need to go to no cemetery. I mean, seminary. Right? I'm not saying everybody's got to, but you're acting like it's a bad thing. And he actually said it would keep him from ministering effectively. I don't know. Maybe I'm partial because I'm me. But I kind of think I benefited from going to Bible college and seminary. Little. I don't know. 
But then he worked at a Methodist Episcopal church. Uh, he was a supply pastor. He was never ordained. And then he, got, uh, he complained that preachers were, quote, not left to preach by direct inspiration. So now what's he saying? I'm not even really going from the Bible. God told me to tell you. And he's complaining that you guys are getting upset that I'm not crazy. He rejected denominations. He established his own itinerant evangelistic ministry. And he preached the ideas of the holiness movement. Again, what's that? That you, gotta, you, can, you can live a sinless life if you get a second dose of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that is this gibberish thing. So he began preaching that. Now, he renounced all medical help. Why? Because you're guaranteed healing, the divine healing thing that they always have there. Uh, and uh, he moved his headquarters to Topeka, Kansas, right? In the middle of the Bible Belt. Okay, Topeka, Kansas. And he established the, quote, Bethel Healing Home. Notice again, it's got to be biblical because it says Bethel. Really? Okay. And uh, he also published what was called the Apostolic Faith Magazine. Now, most of his time was spent at this place. Shiloh. Remember Shiloh? Shiloh, we saw last week, was the charismatic commune from Frank Sanford. Frank Sanford, remember, was the guy that took a group of people, like a Jim Jones tour, down to Australia. And then people were dying. He was starving people to death. Then they decided to go up to Greenland. God told me to tell you to go to Greenland. So they followed him up there. More people died. He comes back to America, and they put him in jail in Atlanta. Okay, remember that? And then he gets out, and then he goes back to Shiloh. Well, that's, that's where this Parham guy is going. He's hanging out with... Uh, uh, Sanford. He also is going to be hanging out with Dowie. We'll see that in a bit. And so that's what he's doing. So he's got his own little thing that he's got going on in the middle of the United States in Topeka. He started Bethel Bible College and it was modeled after Sanford, Frank Sanford. His quote, here's his, the name of his school. It was called Holy Ghost and Us Bible School. The only textbook at Parham's Bible College was the Bible, which, hey, that sounds cool and spirit, uh, spiritual. Uh, and the teacher was, quote, the Holy Spirit, but Parham was the mouthpiece. In other words, he, he'll tell you what it really means. So, yeah, it sounds spiritual. Now, Parham was messed up in a bunch of different ways doctrinally. Shocker. Whoever said that was a genius. Shocker is right. Uh, there's a lot that he got wrong. Now, first one he got wrong is what's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is there is really no eternal hell that when people die and they go to hell, they, they're annihilated and they cease to exist. Really? That's not what the Bible says. Quickly, uh, key word there quickly, Matthew 25. Let me just give you three quick texts. Okay, Matthew 25. And if you find Matthew, what do you do? You go to 25 and uh, verse uh, 46. Let's take a look there. 2546, of course, the ending of the parable of the sheep and the goats. Pretty blunt here. Uh, Jesus, of course, speaking. And he says this. Here's your two options. Pretty cut and dry. Then they will go away to what punishment? Eternal punishment. And same verse. But the righteous go to where? Eternal life. How long is eternal life? When we get to heaven, how long we get to exist with God? Forever. Right? Nobody sneezes at that. In the exact same verse, not even a verse later or a verse before, exact same verse, how long is the eternal punishment? Forever. So how can you say that people go poof and then disappear? It's ridiculous. Revelation 14. Let me give you another one real quick. Revelation 14. And we're going to take a look at verse 11. And uh, this one's pretty blunt too. All right? Revelation 14, verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment rises how long? Forever. How long's forever and ever? Forever. 
Yeah, it rhymes with forever and ever, doesn't it? Right? So, and, and there is no rest. How long? Day or night. For who? For those who worship the beast or in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Let me give you one more. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And we're going to take a look at verse 10. All right? And this is after the final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. And uh, Satan gets chucked into the lake of fire. Right? Here's what it says. Verse 10, Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown where? Into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Now, when were they thrown in there? A thousand years earlier at the end of the seven-year tribulation before the millennial kingdom. And they're still in there. They're still being tormented there. And, uh, and, and notice what he says. They will be, in case you don't realize that, what's he ends on? They will be tormented what? Poof, and cease to exist. No, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, right? So just real quickly, I wanted to dispel that because unfortunately it seems to be gaining some steam in our days. People want to soft pedal hell, right? As if God's doing something wrong. Excuse me, you need to do a study on his holiness. You'll understand hell very easily, okay? And praise God that he sent his son to rescue us from that. Okay, you cheapen God's grace when you try to deny the eternality of hell. Okay, uh, and I'll tell you what, it just makes you want to love Jesus more and more. Yeah, okay. But anyway, so he, he believed in that, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now, remember I said that uh, Parham was, last week, he was extremely racist? Oh, wow. Now again, remember, these Parham, and I'll just go ahead and put them up here. William Seymour, William J. Seymour, Right, are the two that the charismatics are saying, these are the guys that led to the Azusa Street Revival. This is it. These two guys, these are the big pillars, whatever. First of all, we saw it's not true. Right, but whatever. These are the guys, we are just, they're the pillars of what we're doing today. You really want to emulate this guy? Have you even done your own research? Watch how racist this guy is, Charles Parham. Right, he believed in uh, 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 British Israelism, which basically says that the Anglo-Saxon people were the ten lost tribes of Israel. Okay, big error. In addition, Parham subscribed to rather unorthodox views on creation. Okay, understatement of the year. Listen to this. He believed that God took two days to create humans, non-whites on the sixth day, and whites on the eighth day. And you're going to, like, put this guy on a pedestal? He's He started the Azusa Street Revolt. Gets worse than that. Parham also associated with the Ku Klux Klan, and he believed, listen, that interracial marriages is what caused the flood of Noah. Goes even further. He did not believe that black people could be sealed as a part of the bride of Christ. Wow. And you're going to tout him as a big guy to look up to because he led to the Azusa Street? Wow. Man, you better do your homework. Now, like uh, uh, Sanford and Dowie, Charles Parham, Parham taught physical healing, uh, was our, our, our Christian birthright, you're guaranteed you know, perfect health, all that stuff. He railed against the use of medicine and doctors. Uh, he claimed that it was always God's will to heal the sickness. He also, too, was in the praying over the handkerchiefs, and, and if you mail them to him and you get, you know, and all that stuff, you know, so again, nothing new, he's following the lead, okay? But he was into that. Oh, and speaking of guaranteed healing, in spite of that false teaching that he believed and promoted, that it was always God's will to heal and that medicine and doctors should be shunned, one of Parham's son died at the age of one of a sickness that was not healed. And that happened two months after the supposed outbreak of, I don't even want to call it tongues, gibberish. The Azusa Street thing, 
right? Or, or not the Azusa Street thing when it happened in his uh, so-called Bible college, okay? Which is supposed to be evidence of God's pouring of the Spirit in the last days, and you've got the power. Then why'd your son die? I'm not here to be mean about that. I mean, that was horrible. I, I, I would grieve over that. But we're just putting your theology to the test here. Why did that happen? Oh, another one of his sons died at the age of 37. In October 1904, a nine-year-old girl named Nettie Smith died. Her father was an avid follower of Parham, refused medical treatment for his daughter. The little girl's death turned local public opinion against Parham because her sickness was treatable and the community considered it her death unnecessary. False teaching destroys lives, including this stuff including the stuff that's going on still to this day in the charismatic movement. Parham suffered uh, himself, interestingly, various sicknesses throughout his life. And at times he was so sick he couldn't even travel. In fact, he spent the entire winter of 1904 and 1905 sick and bedridden in spite of his own doctrine that healing is guaranteed. What's the matter? You didn't send in your money for that red handkerchief? What, did you lose your faith? You didn't have enough faith? You got some secret sin? Just put into to the test, man, right? Okay, and uh, let's go on. He also believed that those who received the Latter-day Spirit baptism, again, this is supposed to be some Joel 2 thing, which has nothing to do with the church, um, and if you spoke in gibberish, you're the ones who made up the bride of Christ. Is that true? Is that So you now, now you have to speak in gibberish to be a Christian? There's charismatic communities that actually teach that still to this day. We'll get to that eventually in some of our other studies. Uh, he also believed in a partial rapture composed of tongue speakers, gibberish speakers. So again, you're not going in the rapture unless you speak in this gibberish. Is that true? Yeah, not even close, folks. So again, Parham was accredited with the first outbreak of the speaking in gibberish at his Topeka Bible College thingy, right? Okay, he's accredited with that. Now again, number one, is that true? Gibberish been going along for a long time. So that whole belief isn't even true. And then that's where William Seymour is supposed to have picked it up from. And then he eventually takes it to L.A., which leads to the Azusa Street Revival. And then tongues go all across the United States and around the world, i.e. the gibberish. Okay? But, again, that's not even true. But anyway, let's just roll with it. That his supposed first outpouring there. And again, this is what we saw. It occurred with one of his students. And that's this lady, Agnes Osman. And she claimed, now here, listen to this. When this first started, again, it's nothing new. It's always been gibberish. It's been going on throughout history. So this whole instance that there's something new in the last days is not even true. I believe at that point. But when it first started, it, they claimed that what they were speaking was a known language. Now, if it's actual biblical gift that was still in function for today, which is, again, debatable. We already went through that. Okay, I would agree. It has to be Acts chapter 2 what? A known language. So they got that right. But the problem was, we're going to see clearly again tonight, guess what it is, guess what it always is. It ain't a known language, it's gibberish. But these people, when they were doing this, okay, they didn't have a linguist there. They didn't have somebody who could put them to the test there. They were claiming that this was what was coming out of their mouth was a known language. Now, Agnes, as we saw before, what she claimed that she was speaking when this happened to her, that she was speaking the known language of Chinese Right Now, I have, according to this document here, quote, a transcript of a part of what she uttered. I've got a longer part from another lady that supposedly did this too. Right? But here's what she said. I've repeated this before, but let's, here's what it is. Quote, here's what came out of her mouth. This is supposed to be Chinese. Lazo, lazo, logo, 
eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> I am, direct quote, not making that one up, ma'am. As one guy says, that's not speaking in tongues, that's lunacy. <laughs> Agnes Osmond, she was considered the, quote, first to speak in tongues. But again, as we saw, is that true? And it ain't even tongues, it's gibberish. Because that wasn't, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, it's not Chinese. For those of you wondering. Okay. Her experience sparked the modern Pentecostal holiness movement, which again has nothing to do with holiness, right? And uh, because she went to Parham and he prayed and asked Parham to lay hands on her so she could be, quote, filled with the Spirit. And again, if you're a true born again Christian, do you need to do anything like that? No. You're filled with the Spirit at the moment of salvation. We already saw that. But she, so that she could speak in this gibberish. All right. Now, according to her fellow students, their prayers were heard. And her colleagues reported that, listen, a halo had surrounded both her face and her head. And she started speaking Chinese. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Oh, and that, not only that, it said that she could not even speak English for three days. And during that time, she was able to even write Chinese characters. And I showed you that picture. Here it is. Got the actual document. Here it is, folks. This is Agnes Osman writing in tongues. There you go, Chinese. Maybe Chinese if you took some duct tape and you tied a pin to your big toe. And if you went like this long enough, Ruth, then you're... Come on. That is not Chinese. That's the actual photo. And it spread from there. But again, this whole time, notice, because what we're doing today, today we say, dude, that's, that ain't no language. It's a bunch of gibberish. And what do they say today? Well, that's, uh, that's because it's a private language. And it's my secret language. Yeah, no, it's, it's the language of angels, which you already started. That's not even what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 14. It's not what he's talking about. Right? But notice at the outset, they even disagree with their modern counterparts. They claim that it's a known language. But when you put it to the test, is that Chinese? Not even close, right? Later in life, though, listen to this. Agnes admitted that she had been wrong to believe that all people could speak in tongues. Interesting, right? Now, this leads to this guy, William Seymour. So this supposed outbreak of gibberish uh, took place with Parham and his school, right? And this Agnes lady was supposed to be the first one. But again, we saw that's not even true. She claimed to be speaking in Chinese. No way is that true. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo all day long. Okay. And you didn't write it either. Right. But uh, Parham, he attends one of Seymour's uh, schools. Okay. By this time, he had spread from Kansas. Uh, Parham is starting to spread throughout the Midwest, even in Texas, which is where Parham goes from Houston, eventually over to uh, L.A. Okay. But uh, this guy... Uh, he uh, is touted as this is the guy. This is the guy who basically started it all. He got it for started. It started in the early stage of Charles Parham, and then and then Seymour got hooked up with Parham uh, in Houston, and then he goes and the modern charismatic movement that we could only wish could ever happen again and bring revival to America took place. But again, they tout this guy, like Parham, as oh. These guys were the greatest things since sliced bread. But watch this. William J. Seymour was born the son of freed slaves in Louisiana. He attended a Houston Bible school, but when the head of the school prayed for the students to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Seymour had to sit outside. 
because he was black. Even though he missed the prayer meeting, he took the message of Pentecost to a small church in Los Angeles. After his first fiery sermon on healing in prayer languages, he was locked out of the church and told not to come back. So Seymour joined a small prayer group at 312 Bonnie Bray Street. As he preached the message there, the fire of the Holy Spirit came down. People spoke in tongues and were healed. Over the next few days, huge crowds gathered for interracial services. Many received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, including Seymour himself. In fact, so many were drawn to the powerful meetings, the front porch collapsed under the weight of all the people. So for $50 a month, they rented an old barn on Azusa Street. Services ran constantly for three years, from 1906 to 1909. As people from around the world came to hear Seymour's messages, the modern Pentecostal movement quickly went global. Segregation had kept Seymour from receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Houston. But after he received the baptism at the L.A. sermons, Seymour took steps toward yet another kind of church reformation. At the time, neither women nor black people had the right to vote. Segregation was the national norm. But the first directors of Seymour's apostolic faith mission included men and women, both black and white. William J. Seymour's life and his ministry illustrate that we are all God's children, adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. And he showed the world that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available to Christians. Well, we went through that study, too. That was another falsehood. First of all, notice the phrase there uh, that he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those people kept him from receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who gives us the Spirit? God. When does it happen? At salvation. So this whole premise of, I need somebody, you kept me from getting the, excuse, if you're a born-again Christian, you got the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8 says, if you ain't got the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. Because if you belong to God, he's going to. That's when you get baptized in the Spirit. But notice they take a biblical phrase, and what they really mean is it's some second work that you need through some methodology that they have. Now, also, notice he said that the, the gifts were for today. Are all the gifts in function for today? No, we went through that in, our, in the first half of our study. They're not. So, again, the faulty premise. But, again, this happened in, uh, uh, arrived. he arrives in L.A., February uh, 22nd, 1906, and preached at a church two days later. He argued that, listen, speaking in tongues, i.e. gibberish, was the evidence of having received the Holy Spirit, quote, even though he had not experienced it himself. So according to your own doctrine, you're not even saved or whatever. I mean, it's all messed up. So you're going around preaching and you say that you can't speak in gibberish, which you say is evidence you got the Holy Spirit. But you don't have. The, so why are they letting you behind the pulpit if you ain't got the Holy Spirit? I mean, you can't have it both ways. But anyway, that's just kind of an interesting side note. But anyway, here's how it all went down. On Friday, April 6, 1906, the members there, again, now he's at this mission on Azusa Street, L.A., decide to add fasting to their discipline of regular prayer. They planned a 10-day fast during which they would study Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And they would pray each evening until they had the same experience described in that text. Oh, by the way, again, when we saw about the gifts, even the gifts that are in function for today, but the Bible says, uh, can you fast all day long and get gift, whatever gift you want? Do, can you take a class and get a gift what you want? Can somebody lay hands on you and give you a gift that you want? What's it say? 
the Holy Spirit gives them at salvation as he wills. So this whole thing about we got to do this and we got to pray and fast and just tarry, brother. It'll come on you. That's not even biblical, right? But anyway, so that's what they're doing. And then on April 9th, Edward Lee spoke in gibberish after Seymour laid hands on him in Lee's home. Overjoyed, the group walked to the Asbury's house for the evening meeting. Seymour took his text, as was expected from Acts 2-4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. He then went on to explain that that's what happened to Edward Lee. No sooner had he completed the story when someone else began to speak in gibberish. Before the evening was over, several others had had been speaking in gibberish. Over the next three days, the Asbury home became the focus of attention among various networks of Wesleyan holiness people. So here comes some more of the charismatic group. And quote, this news spread like fire. The Azusa Street revival had begun. And then three days later, on April 12th, after a long evening spit in prayer, Seymour himself received the, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in gibberish. The resulting movement is what launched what we're dealing with today called modern Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement. Uh, By 1909, by the end of 1909, the movement had spread everywhere to, listen, every region of the United States had a Pentecostal presence by them with Additional missions planted in 50 nations uh, or, or 50 nations worldwide. So I'll, I'll give you the point that it spread from here on a massive scale. But it's nothing new under the sun, right? And is this something we need to celebrate? No. Now let's get into the details of what actually went on when this supposed revival broke out on Azusa Street. Here's what really happened there. You tell me if you want this ever to happen to you or anybody in our country and then if you're going to tout it as a good thing. Uh, if you read the description of Azusa Street Services, it was bedlam. Anyone can get up and preach, and everyone did. Nobody stopped you to ask for your testimony to even make sure if you were even saved. And one guy records the account there. Quote, Many blessings are claimed to have arisen from these meetings at Azusa Street, but is it true? No, it's not. And most Pentecostal historians have glossed over, listen, the terrible wickedness and the abandonment that occurred there. First of all, Seymour rarely even preached. And when he did, he simply uttered a few words of scripture before challenging people to, quote, let the tongues come forth, which today charismatics use the same command. They say, let the fire fall. Same thing. Experience took place repeatedly. Uh, What occurred was shaking, the so-called slain in the spirit, various physical gestures, gibberish, contortions, sexual impropriety, jerking, shrieking, barking, hooting, crawling, etc. Women often lay on the floors for hours. Blankets were kept ready to cover their nakedness. Men would jump. Women would dance. Everyone sang different melodies, rhythms, and words. It was utter chaos. And in the cacophony, Seymour would put his head in a box to pray. Others put their heads under the benches. Many times people fell off the platform and onto the benches and chairs, but the worst was yet to come. Expressive praise, shouting and dancing. Most people were poor, uneducated people. Women wailed and screamed while men would fall or rush in crowds to the front. Listen, the bedlam opened the door. This is historically verified, folks. Opened the door for witches, mediums, spiritualists, and voodoo. In fact... The charismatic movement says that these two guys, they're the great guys, the pillar that started the Azusa Street Revival, that they celebrated the 110th, if only it could ever happen again. Pariam, the racist guy, he actually comes after this thing happens in L.A., okay, 
And Parham had some words to say about it. It's like, why don't you, you're acting like these guys are in cahoots and they're, they're bros and they believe this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Listen to what Parham said. Now, Parham had his troubles. Can we verify that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, but listen to what he said about what was going on there at the Azusa Street. Direct quote. He called it the, a seduction of the devil, the work of hypnotists and evil spirits, animalism, all kinds of spells, and said, quote, God is sick at his stomach. Whoa. Occultists from all over L.A. attended and contributed seances, trances to the meetings, and this disturbed Seymour, but he didn't control it. What? You got the occult involved in here. Even claims of early racial tolerance. Now, remember how they pitch this? This guy was a milestone. Not only the people speaking gibberish and spread across America and across the world, the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. It's amazing. But he also brought down the interracial barriers. Did you see? Now people of all different colors and races were united, and it was wonderful. And really? That's how it's pitched today. Quote, The claims of early racial tolerance are false. There were disruptions between whites and blacks. Seymour made Hispanics leave and then denied leadership to white people. So much for coming all together. Seymour's two female aides left and took his mailing list to start another work in Portland while another leader started the Assemblies of God after being expelled in 1914. As one man says, when you take a look at the facts going on here, this is not from God. And yet, you're like, yeah, if only it could ever happen again. Excuse me? Wow. One guy says this, I dare say that the modern word faith devotee would have been horrified by the actions of Azusa, including reports of kissing between unmarried persons during the services. Seymour was not trained because Parham was not trained, because Dowie and Sanford were not trained. And from all this, we get... Amy Simple McPherson, which we'll probably have a whole study on eventually, and almost all the Pentecostal, the word faith denominations, and it all comes from untrained men who learn from pagans and cultists and new age. Yes. Now, let's, as we close, let's dispel this thing. Oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe that was kind of weird, having seances and occult stuff going on there and people doing weird stuff. But, hey, at least we know out of it came the true known language of tongues. No, it wasn't. Now, remember, again, they thought this was a known language. What do they say today? Oh, no, it's a, it's a private prayer language. It's a, that's why you can't understand it. Right? So, but anyway, listen to this. When they first started, okay, uh, they, again, claimed it was tongues. Let me give you another example. Now, this is from this, and this is one of Parham's students, another student. We saw Agnes Osman. This is this lady, Miss Lillian Thistlethwaite. Now, that's torture. For people, you, you sound like you got a lisp. I sound like I got a lisp. A lisp thistle bit, and I don't have one. That's just, that's rough. So I don't know what happens there. Anyway, let's I move on. We got time to go. All right, so, okay, they actually, she said she had the speaking of a known language going on. She got the gift, quote unquote, right? So she was asked if she could talk some. And first she says, well, the, the Lord hasn't inspired her. But then all of a sudden she started uttering strange words. And they recorded exactly what she said. And I've got an even longer description of what she's supposed to. Now remember, this is supposed to be a known language. And I quote, Usa, Usa, Yusrela, Simakala, Malakana, Lula, Saj, Nalan, Lego, Lago, Lazi, Lago, I kid you not, Ini, Mindmo. 
See, that's different. It must be a different language. Because she forgot the minimo. <laughs> Sara Elma Sarami. Now, in case you didn't know, this was translated to mean Jesus is mighty to save, Jesus is ready to hear, and God is love. No, that's gibberish. That didn't mean nothing. And yet, that's exactly the thing that we experience today, and we're told that we have no right to challenge, and you're just a, a fundamentalist. You're, you're, just, you're just a fuddy-duddy. You're resisting the Spirit of God. No, I'm resisting false teachings is what I'm doing. Right? All right, same thing's going on today. Now, again, they thought it was real languages, even to the point where uh, eventually it started to be put to the test. Right? Now, this is from uh, November, 19, November 14, 1906, and this was in a, a, a publication, and it was a Hindu guy who spoke six different languages, and he said, quote, he has never heard any of them at a tongue meeting, okay, because they said that they, they're speaking like Hindu. And one of the languages he could also talk is Arabian, and some of the people at the meetings claimed that they were talking Arabian, but he said, quote, it sounded like a lot of turkey gobblers. <laughs> so there is, it's being put to the test. At the beginning, they're going, this ain't, that's my language, that ain't. Any many more, many more. Uh, we don't speak that. Okay. Now, another one, uh, a gentleman f- who for years had been at the head of the missionary work in India, he was over there uh, with a view of, he's thinking this is, they're saying it's, it's known languages. I mean, think about that. This will revolutionize missions. That we don't have to spend money to train these people to learn a foreign language. <laughs> and so he goes there thinking, I'll pick up some of these guys and we can get them in the field immediately. Speaking Hindu. So he goes over there for his field to profess those that have a gift of tongues. He came back stating that he, quote, could find no one who could really speak in any of the languages of India uh, with which he was acquainted. And again, they thought this was going to end or help missions out because it's supposed to be a known language. Charles Parham said, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to people of various nations without having them to study in schools. Right? You know, that's what you do in mission schools. You got, it takes so long to learn the language of who you're going to minister to. He says, no more of that. Listen to this. He said, if they are worthy and they seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they work with in their own language, which, of course, will be at a great advantage. If that were true, I agree. He says, students of the Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn languages. That they, they, it's, it's been conferred on them miraculously. Now they will be able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt that various dialects of the people of India and even the languages of the savages of Africa will be received during our meetings in the same way I expect this gathering to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost. So again, they said it's a known language. It's going to revolutionize missions. As, quote, David Moore said, sadly, the idea would later prove embarrassing failure to Pentecostal workers who went off to mission fields with their gifted tongues and found their hearers did not understand them. They actually left thinking that what they were speaking apparently was a known language. They go to the mission fields. Now, can you imagine that day? You go over there to India or pick a country, and these guys, hey, I'll give you an A-plus on boldness. I'll give you an A-plus on sacrificing and trying to do the right thing. But can you imagine getting there and they show up on the scene and here comes a Hindu and they start going, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. And the, the, the Hindu's looking at him like, what? This really happened. But again, I digress. What did they say at the beginning of this? It's a known language. 
completely opposite of what they say today. So you're, anyway, but now listen to this. Uh, other historians, they begin to put them to test and all begin to fall apart, obviously. Uh, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India, quote, expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue. And he found that by their own admission, in no single instance had they been able to do so. So they literally went around the world. And anyway, and these other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure. Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view on languages, on tongues, okay? Uh, in fact, many people have put them to test over the years, and I'm just going to read one. This is from a, 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 a linguist. He said, Over a period of five years, I've taken part in meetings in Italy, Holland, Jamaica, Canada, the United States. I have observed old-fashioned Pentecostals and Neo-Pentecostals. I've been in small meetings at private homes as well as mammoth public meetings. I have been to such cultural settings found in the Puerto Ricans of the Bronx, snake handlers of the Appalachians, you name it. It is doubtful that the alleged cases of... Uh, languages among charismatics are real. Anytime anyone attempts to verify them, he finds that the stories have been greatly distorted or that the so-called witnesses turn out to be incompetent or unreliable. Okay? So again, it's not, they said it was a known language, more power to you, they went across the world saying, man, this is great, it just revolutionized missions. They came back, it's an utter dismal failure. Why? Because it's not the biblical gift. And it's not even a function for today. Now, when it became apparent that the Pentecostal understanding of tongues did not consist of human languages, quote, the entire movement faced an interesting dilemma. Because you put all your eggs in this basket, didn't you? Now, now back it up, right? In order to live this so-called sinless life and have the power of God and be guaranteed this healing, have these special powers, be that prophet. You've got to have a second dose of the Holy Spirit. But the only way we know you've got that special power, that second dose of the Spirit, is if you speak in gibberish. So they, they, they're all in on this. And it literally got proven an utter failure. So, quote, they could uphold their exegetical understanding of tongues and deny their experience. In other words, say, we were wrong. God, would you please forgive us? We went outside your word. But that ain't what happened. Quote, or they could hold on to their experiential understanding of tongues and radically change their exegesis. Quote, they chose the latter. And that's what we're dealing with today. Okay, and that's what we have. It consists of strings of meaningless syllables made up of sounds taken from those familiar to the speaker and put together more or less haphazardly. The speaker controls the rhythm, the volume, the speed, the inflection of a speech so that the sounds inter- emerge as a, quote, pseudo-language. What's that mean? False language. It's made up. It's gibberish, okay, in the words of uh, sentences. Now, believe it or not, uh, that's what we're dealing with today. And right now, today, there are more than 500 million Pentecostal and charismatic believers across the globe, and it is the fastest-growing form of Christianity today. Can I just be blunt? Put all this behavior that we saw, with all due respect, together. Is that really the one you want on the front lines, exposing other cultures to Christianity? Not good. Not good. Right? And, quote, the Azusa Street Revival is commonly regarded as the beginning of the modern-day Pentecostal movement. 
Again, uh, it went on there. They, they started from 1906, the Apostolic Faith Mission, the Italian Pentecostal Mission. Uh, Wesleyan holiness denominations uh, adopted it. Then that's you had the, the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, the Church of God in Christ, the Pentecostal Holiness Church. The Assemblies of God came out of this in 1914. Uh, you had the Foursquare Church came out of this, the Pentecostal Church of God in 1919. Uh, then they began to split like nobody's business. Uh, over uh, different issues, uh, certainly over the Trinity and other aspects. Then you had what's called the Oneness Pentecostals, uh, later founded as the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World in 1916, and they uh, became the UPC or the United Pentecostal Church in 1945. Now, believe it or not, as we close tonight, we're going to close with a public service announcement. Give it up for Ron. Ron, come on down, share the important information as we close our study tonight. church. Pastor Billy wanted me to be a little bit more 5G because earlier I was 1G when he first, you know, told me how to get up here. But uh, next Wednesday night, bring your world religion, cult, and occult workbooks to the church. That's my public announcement. Give it up for Ron. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe it? We had to do something different. It took us 26 weeks. We're finally in the workbook. Dealing with oneness Pentecostalism. That's the section that we're going to be dealing with next. And then believe it or not, shocker, when we're done with that, if we're still alive and still here, then we're going to go back into our history. We'll pick up probably with the Assemblies of God's Foursquare and keep moving on up to modern day as we finish out our final section on the cults. And then eventually, Lord willing, if we're still alive and still here, we get into the occult uh, in that aspect as well. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ... Uh, it has been turned into a common cuss word. 
Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judge has said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, 
Don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.